Today we're gonna discuss Mission Impossible from Flick Lab. I'm Karri, and you are my co-host Henrik. And this is a podcast that focuses on international film, but we've been doing some American cinema here lately. We like to deep dive into films and bring some special guests and experts from time to time from any given field related to cinema. We have had some uh, film professors and writers and all kinds of interesting guests from around the world to join us. Today, though, we're going to discuss about Mission Impossible from 1996. Yeah, Mission Impossible, the original, the first one, actually is one of those films that were, well, can't say hugely influential for me, but it was a movie, or it is a movie that was a phenomenon back in my childhood when I was a wee little co-hoster. And it was, like, even, even in Finland, it was surprisingly big deal and it was something that especially especially thanks to its theme music it was something that you just couldn't escape from feeling if, yeah. if you were were alive back in the day and if you ask from the original cast and crew some of them from the 1960s and 1980s TV series Mission Impossible, which, of course, this whole Tom Cruise enterprise is based on, they would say that this success. Yeah, well, you know, there's always a Jim Phelps in the crowd, as this film points out. Yeah, so we're gonna do like a, uh, three of the first Mission Impossible films. The idea here was that we go through the period of the most changes in the franchise that kind of a preface that, that the phase where everything was kind of looking itself i guess or basically they were these were just standalone adventures with different directors and they wanted to do their own thing or what was fitting at the time so the question could be raised if the movies are really looking for themselves or they are just trying different things and hey ho we did this thing the last time we're gonna do something else now and then try this you know Jason Bourne-esque thing on the Mission Impossible 3 and just see how it goes. If we're talking about like originality of format well I guess you're right in a sense that that the first one is the first one quite Brian De Palma-ish movie, I understand. Then we have the one from John Woo, which is very action-oriented. And then we have the third one, which is very Jason Bourne-oriented. And maybe Ethan Hunt, Mission Impossible movie franchise never outgrew the uh, period of Jason Bourne. Yeah, Mission Impossible is, is a curious case as a franchise. It's in a similar boat with something like, for example, Fast and the Furious, which also these days... Is like what seven, eight, nine, ten movie behemoth, mm-hmm. much like Mission Impossible also, and just like Mission Impossible, Fast and Furious also was something that was never actually originally 
Like if you go all the way back to the first film, it's glaringly obvious that they weren't really planning on any franchise. Like the first film in in Fast and Furious, it's extremely standalone-ish. And I would say the same thing is with Mission Impossible. So once again, we, we just like with Fast and Furious, with Mission Impossible, we also are talking about a major franchise, like this huge, enormous blockbuster franchise whose, whose own name is a brand on itself. And I kind of raised the, the theory that it wasn't planned. It was more or less. It was. It was a. It was kind of a happy accident that it managed to turn into the franchise that it is today. And in my opinion, the first three movies that we are going to now look into into this, this and the following two episodes, you kind of see how you you have the the fledgling newborn gets gets a little perhaps a little weight on him grows up couple of years older and eventually matures into something that in the end could turn into a franchise. But we are like looking at the messy origins of the Mission Impossible. Yeah, uh, I can't really comment on that. What was the intention of of the team? I just know that they, they started the whole production company, but I don't know what was the intention, whether to go with the franchise or, or not. Nothing indicates in the ending of this film to my, in my opinion, that it would be any kind of a franchise. But. Yeah, the, the first one kind of leaves the door open, but it, it kind of a, like, like it, it leaves out the possibility that a future Ethan Hunt adventure could come from this. But there is no continuation between, well, well especially between the first three movies. There is almost like it's surprising how little continuation we have. And then from the third onwards, we kind of, well, we have a wife who gets off the screen and then finally shows quickly again at the end of Fallout. So we, we have like like continuation, but not really. And perhaps like Mission Impossible can be, like we, we have been talking about these franchises before. And, and the possibilities of something being a franchise. We did that with Terminator. We have done it with, well, just recently with Jurassic Park. Mm. And I, I have been kind of hesitant to give any kind of a like franchise appeal to many of these IPs. Jurassic Park being perhaps the most notorious, where I was like really against the possibility of Jurassic Park. Or I, I felt strongly felt and still feel that it was a brain-dead decision to ever actually see Jurassic Park yeah. as a franchise. Well, it was a brain-dead uh, decision in the hands of these people, unfortunately. I, I would say it was brain-dead decision all around. Like the, the foundation was faulty. And I do kind of think that Mission Impossible, just like Fast and Furious and James Bond, there are examples of things or franchises that actually really do work as franchises. And they are examples of things that can actually benefit from the fact that they are franchises. In my opinion, Mission Impossible benefits hugely from it being a franchise and it having all the later films that have now come out of, that came out after Mission Impossible 3 and yeah. perhaps like looking at Mission Impossible we can I don't know crack the code perhaps 
what actually makes an IP a working and beneficial franchise, and what are like some of the red flags that you should most definitely avoid. <laughs> We're gonna have so much fun with that subject. What I believe is that what is the why why this works as a franchise is the fact that this is a this is an agent film and they usually kind of go and benefit from being a franchise because you have one mission that has a beginning to an end and beginning and an end and then you are easily you know you can easily build up the second entry just have a new new mission and some new characters and it's just it's just a wonderful ip to go with with great actors with great plots and etc that is one thing the other thing is that in my opinion much like James Bond, much like Fast and Furious, Mission Impossible also is an IP that is extremely shallow. Like when you look at it, look at what it has. It has, and well, we are in the early years of this of Mission Impossible. What does it have in the early years? It has Ethan Hunt and it has masks, and that's about it. Everything else. It's a kind of a moving constant here in, in Mission Impossible universe. Luther is, is still, well, okay, Luther is semi-stable, but everything else. The, the agency goes out of whack, Ethan's role in the agency changes every weekly, the leaders change every now and then, wives come in, go out. It's like, it's basically, at the end of the day, what holds Mission Impossible, like, like if you would have to pinpoint the foundation, like the bricks or, or the nails that hold Mission Impossible together from one film to the next, you, you have less than a handful, in my opinion. Yeah, I realized something when watching these movies. I don't like them that much. In fact, I, I like them, but not terribly, except for one notable exception, of course, of course. But that's interesting where you were going with that, that the movies are, are shallow. Why are they shallow? I, I can see that you could be going to the more to the direction of that, okay, it has all these kind of agency elements. But for example, in the first one, especially, I see that, okay, you have a script. The script basically is the instruction manual on what these characters are going to do do and i i feel that the whole dialogue of the film even the locations of the film are just should i say half-assed they are just there to serve the purpose of okay i go to a then i go to b then i go to c and this location is just here for the characters to to, to speak their mind so that they can have the moment of their dialogue and be done with it that's the level of I... effort i find in this film I kind of, I'm, I'm completely on the opposite end when it comes to the first one. I actually enjoy immensely the, the environments. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of the dialogue Oof. in the first Mission Impossible. I think it's hands down, it's the best dialogue that we have in Mission Impossible films. And a lot of that, in my opinion, comes down to its director, Brian De Palma. Who is who was an old school, like thriller director? Someone who had ma already made his name in in well, not really action movies. Much like the first Mission Impossible is not really at the end of the day that actiony as an adventure. Brian De Palma is much more a thriller director, and I think that it's basically it's it's Palma's 
kind of essence as a as a thriller director that actually is the reason why why the locations and why the dialogue works so well. Okay, I feel that the dialogue is often weird and unnatural, and there are some some fancier words used there at key moments, and those can be quite distracting from the important information at those moments. And, and that, 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 that might be actually the reason why most of the audiences say that this plot is convoluted. It Hell no, it's not convoluted really no, that much. No, you no. Know, it's quite easy to understand, but there are some moments yep. that are just flying past you and they maybe are not given enough emphasis, so they use weird English words and then you just have to, you know, go back and hey, what the fuck was that? And that's absolutely fair criticism towards the first film. And it's very much a, like a cup of tea thing. I absolutely love that in First Mission Impossible. That's why I rank, rank the dialogue in, in the first Impossible so highly Ooh. in this franchise. And why I do think that no other film actually reaches that level. It's a it's a genre thing, very much. And that's why I wanted to focus on the fact that Brian De Palma is the director here. Because it's it's part of like the old 70s and 60s, 80s film noir spy movie thing where mm. characters are saying one thing, they mean another thing. There's constantly a hidden meaning in somewhere that the half of the, the speech is ciphers. It's it's a thing that is is extremely divisive. I absolutely love it in in my spy entertainment, and I think that it's especially it's something that belongs into the genre. But at the same time, it's a thing that can absolutely drive you crazy if you just don't enjoy it, and if you feel that you don't want to engage the dialogue on that level. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's hard to, you know, start arguing about that. It's kind of a thing that you like or you don't, like you said. But coming back to the locations, I figure that they are kind of boring and gray in tone. And that the movie kind of makes the, the best effort for us to not get engaged with the environment because the the whole, whole color palette is kind of gray and not not any offense to to Czech Republic, but kind of on the on the gray side, really. And when there is colors, it seems to be, I don't know, Henrik. Even when I was watching this film as a kid, I got this ooh vibe from this film that something is off. These are kind of taste things. I I think this is completely taste, but you may know it's that absolutely I, tasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I feel that. I, I strongly connect and I strongly react to everything visual and Mission Impossible is sending me the nope vibes here. Yeah, yeah, I understand that because that's also the feeling. Like, I also get the feeling that something's off. Mm -hmm. And to me, on the other hand, my response is that I have, once again, like the di dialogue, it's something that I really appreciate in my spy films. You are correct when when you say that the color palette and the way how it's it's being shot it kind of wants you to skip past or it 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 it, it is the way that it does not want to give you something in the environment that you could enjoy it's it's not like for example James Bond movies especially on Daniel Craig era 
where you have these like these huge sets and you have all this color coming from James Bond is is standing on a boat that lavish and luxury luxurious visual elements you get none of that absolutely none of that in in Mission Impossible for the first one it's it really is quite gray i i love when James Bond movies are all about that fancy shit but outside of James Bond franchise, I kind of like the dull and gray in my spy films. The locations that Mission Impossible f- the f- uses, they are very stipi- typical of your of your spy movies. They're typical of spy movie locations. Mm-hmm. You you have a train station, you have a safe house, you have the, the consulate, you have, well, Langley because CIA, so every single goddamn time. So it's very much like genre locations. And with that genre, I also think that it's very much genre film uh, cinematography. What the images want to show you is that the world that these people exist, it's not really that bright and it's not really that interesting. They are more like, they are, they are small specks just tiny ants that are yeah. surrounded by all, all of these these machines and all of these institutions that they are in a crowd of, of hundreds or thousands of people and <clears throat> in that crowd you have like one or two assholes who are quietly talking around a coffee cup and actually holding the fate of the world in their hands. Yeah, and coming from that I guess it's natural to talk about the, the the films, not necessarily pacing per se, because that will give you the the wrong impression of what I mean. Not exactly pacing, but yes, pacing. Uh, the kind of rhythm of of the scenes is weird. Uh, I find that it's incredible how we start off the film already on on the wrong leg. I feel you know you start with the goddamn shot of a monochrome TV screen and before that we have heard some noises there on the background it starts really really you know subdued and slowly you don't really understand what's going on honestly I think they're trying to give some kind of impression you don't really need to care what's going on this is really mundane how we start off with that kind of a shot your movie your mission impossible movie yeah it is it it, it is mundane and it's actually quite dark both in in visual and in subject matter of of the scene and once again that's actually something that i really like here i i like the fact that where since since these people are supposed to be like professional spies and spy work if you actually ever read into the actual spy work and the actual lives of like real life spies you actually realize that it's Actually, quite damn boring. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like the mundanity in the opening of of Mission Impossible One. You have a classic spy situ- situation. You have a fake body in order to frame somebody for something that they did not do, so that you can pretend to be another guy and use the situation to blackmail the dude to do something that he does not want to do, but it's beneficial for you. It's like it's like 101 spy shit. But once again, because it's kind of everyday job for these people, 
it's extremely mundane. And I love kind of the, the complexity. It's a, it's a, once again, it's a, it's a Palma thing. Having complex, perhaps at times even overtly complex shots. Where in here you, you start in the, in the dark room where you don't actually, you don't have a context. You don't know what the hell is going on. You just slowly zoom through this, this dark mundane room where one dude is sitting in front of a monitor. And it's it's like like black and white old palaki monitor. You kinda slowly zoom into the image there, and then you linger in the the image on the monitor where the major of the plot, like the dialogue wise, the main main plot is given to you. And then there then there is a quick cut to the monitor watching man from the front this time, and on the background it's it's blurry. And it's there's nothing like nothing on the movement actually shows you that you are supposed to like pay attention or have a keen attention on what happens on the background. There's just one character moving, but at the same time, what the one character is doing and it's being shown to you, although really mon- in in a really mundane fashion, she's actually spicing the drinks. And that's like I, I I really do like that. Once again, it's it's very much antithesis on how James Bond franchise would do this scene. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not saying that you can try different things and you can't do spy stuff in any other way than James Bond or anything like that. But even if even if we look at the kind of the what the audience knows when they are simply dropped into this scene, we don't know really what the hell is going on. And of course, that's the that's perfectly intentional but i still what i got from this scene is that okay we got a name okay and then i have the follow-up question what name i guess this is going to you know amp up the the curiosity of the audience or that's the intention of the palma but i'm like okay what name why why is this scene here and how is this supposed to be you know leading us up to the mission impossible theme now like What's the exciting part about this goddamn name that we have this as the starting point of our movie? Yeah, it's it's very much a, it's a Palma thing. Palma really loves to do these uh, things where it, he shows you kind of simple, kind of dull situation, which then either it, it it can eventually like pan out into something much larger, or then it might be that it's just. Just your opening, that the, at the end of a day, for the story, actually doesn't mean anything. Blowout, which is one of the one of the like classic Brian De Palma's with John Travolta, is a good example of this. You don't get any of the context. You eventually you realize what's happening. Somebody has shot the tire off the car. John Travolta has accidentally recorded it. It's actually a murder scene, but that's just like information that you get. An hour into the movie, the opening once again—it's extremely cold. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, it can be his his style, but but I I think there's a kind of this repeating theme with this with the Mission Impossible movie that you are dropped in the middle of situations. Uh, in the case of the intro, intentionally you are kind of left with not much information. And uh, in the follow-up scenes, you are dropped in the middle of situations like the embassy, which is, I think the embassy scene is clumsily executed, the whole party at the embassy. You know, 
you could at, le at least try to build some kind of attention by showing some how, how the agents are getting into the embassy in the first place but they are they are just there and already yeah, and they, they just they, get into it they there's, get, there's no actually a major obstacle that they have to get over. And this is, I think, what, one of the um, things that the fans of the original TV show, which I haven't seen again, which they complain that in that TV show there was a lot of obstacles to get on with things. Uh, you would have to kind of struggle with every step of the way and show to the audience the whole whole struggling. But I'm not so much about the fact that they are not struggling per se, but you could at least build some tension in some way that you show the agents, they get into the embassy, and then they are, in this case, they are just there, and then they simply walk into places, so there's no sense of danger whatsoever. Even then there is the guard who just pops up and checks the lady's identity, and he pops out of nowhere. Uh, if I would do this scene, I would just dump the whole De Palma version out of the window, and then build some goddamn tension into the scene. Like some steps, we have to know as an audience what is going to happen next. We basically know that, but we could show the place first, then look around, okay, what is going on here, what's the next step, kind of build it up piece by piece when you are in the scene. And it's the same exact same problem for me with the CIA scene in the Langley scene. They are basically already in the goddamn vents. There is no struggle to get to the vault itself. The tension inside the vault, and that's a different thing. That's pretty good stuff. So there's not enough foreshadowing or kind of narrative there. And, and because of this, then you don't really care about the story that much or you don't emphasize with the characters that much or the spectacle pieces with the CIA. Uh, I kind of have to disagree with you there. I actually don't think that the movie would actually need tension before the big spectacles. With the embassy... The point actually never in the embassy is on the team. The team is never never in the focus. In in fact, if anything, the embassy, in my opinion, should be as easy as possible for the team because it's supposed to be super routine, super easy job. We have done it mm. for 50 times. The real focus in, in the whole embassy, the embassy is just build up. For the cock-up cascade that starts after the embassy, when the whole team slowly gets erradicated from the face, face of the earth, earth through different means. And that's mm. kind of when Palma finally starts to have tension in, in his movie. That's where he really start, tries to, to build something. When Ethan is, is like chaotically running from one mo moment to the next and just seeing how his whole team gets slowly wiped out and he's completely incapable of doing anything to help any of them. He gets to the bridge and sees how the, the car explodes just before he has seen how Jim gets shot on, on, on the same bridge. And that that's kind of a, like the the whole focal point of, of the, the entire embassy itself. It's just build up for this one moment. And I feel the same way for Langley. Like, like the whole, we are sitting down and we are talking about like what type of security features Langley's room has. It's just mm -hmm. to establish you the obstacles that they have to figure out. And then the whole, we get into the events moment, it just build up 
for the main event, which is when Ethan Hunt is is hanging from the when on the, the hanging in the air from the from the rope, and that's when all of that too much noise, too much heat, the pressure sensors on the floor. That's when all of that is paid off. Yeah, fair enough. That's a, just a different way of looking at this thing, I guess. And I'm totally fair that the kind of tension starts to kick in after the whole events there. I just look at the guard, for example, who is checking the lady's papers and whether she's allowed to be a guest there. And, you know, she he just comes out of nowhere. There's nothing to it. It's so routine that, gee, yeah, you really have to wait for what is happening in the bridge and outside in the exteriors before you get this thing going. But yeah, okay, fair, fair points there, fair points. But, for example, when we get Ethan back to the meeting place... He starts to look into this whole Max character, looks into the whole Job, then finds the Bible, etc. And he seems to do this with very clear intention, like posting on the internet forums, and it's all pure hunch and guesswork, which is, sure, it it should be, but he is going like 100% on that. And as an audience, I go a bit like, are you sure about this? Should we? Are you just wasting your time? And you could then respond, of course, that, well, he has nothing else to go on with, and that would be also an absolutely fair point. But as an audience, I would understand, me included, that you could go like, is there like a clear connection with the Ethan's actions and goals throughout the film? He kind of has a clear connection with, with what he does and what he, his goals are. I do admit that the whole Job or Max email message thing. It's perhaps it's the most messiest moment in this film. Not because it, I I would feel that Ethan's action here would somehow be illogical or something that he would have to think over. Because frankly, at this point, Ethan is is like he's a, he's like a rat in a maze. His own agency is hunting for him. Everybody sees him as a traitor. It's just a moment. Or it's a, just a question of moment when the walls come closing in and when what, when the agency finally has him. He's kind of like he's, he's running in quicksand and he's being hunted by the entire IMF. So I'm really fine with Ethan taking these big gambles here. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing with, with the Max email scene, in my opinion, is the fact that the way how Ethan actually figures out how to contact Max is kind of messy. It, it, it's based upon two throwaway lines, or not, not throwaway lines, but two lines that Ethan, that Kintridge throws at Ethan when they are meeting at the aquarium restaurant. The, the first one is, is really like handed to you on, on, on a silver platter. When Kindrich informs Ethan that the mole has been contacting someone named Max. So yeah, you get Max at, you get Max from there. But the whole rest of the email address, it's based, basically it's based upon, on, on two things. It's based upon the mission job uh, 314. And then it's based upon Ethan, you know, picking up the Bible and understanding that you know, they they have used the Bible references as 
as a matrix for their code. But it's like I said, it's kind of messy, and part of that is that once again, keeping in true to the the tropes of the spy genre, major pieces of information are just kind of given to you. That there's a wall of dialogue, major piece of information, wall of dialogue, and you know you better spot it at that moment, or you will be left completely at lost. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But if you are 100% committed to watching this film, I don't think you have any problem following the film. But the whole is the plot convoluted. There's a lot of convenient beats, I would say. And that might make you feel convoluted about this as well. Like Krieger, played by Jean Reno, happening to be in Ethan's team as a mole. It's quite the coincidence, perhaps. Like, And then just the fact that he manages to be there and then Jim Phelps is a mole, Krieger is a mole, Claire is a mole, Kittredge is a distraction. Max and Phelps. I can read this in two ways and I definitely didn't read them as accomplices. I read that they were both doing their own thing. They do uh, work together but I got zero indication that this would be the case. It would make more sense that they are competitors in my opinion. Uh, no, they are accomplices. It's once again, it's a thing that's like given to you quickly on the on the dialogue. It's part of the whole one hundred and fifty thousand that's used to frame Ethan. Basically, with the the situation there is that somebody has been like the mole has been leaking a whole bunch of information to Max, and they are looking for Max's mole and Phelps. Just is that mole. Well, to jump a little bit all over the place, as usual, the film has a lot of great actors, no doubt about that. Big names. We have Wing Rames, we have Vanessa Redgrave, we have uh, Jean Reno, as mentioned, we have. Uh, ooh, uh, uh, what am I missing here? Uh, Tom Cruise, perhaps. Tom Cruise, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, some would say that not a great actor, but I, I wouldn't be so, so, so Somebody would say not a big da- name, but, you know. Uh, yeah, minor dude. But the whole thing, you have a lot of actors, but then you don't really do anything with them. I feel that you could have much more interesting performances going on here. But I, I think the script just, just doesn't allow them to develop, to, to show their personality enough. Like Luther Stickle, I would even argue that in most of these movies, he's just, you know, sitting there and sometimes saying something cool like, oh, I'm mad, and that's about it. Uh, pretty much, yeah. That's kind of it for a large part of MI casts altogether. If, like, if you follow the franchise through to its end, at this point, that being the fallout, you actually notice that the teams kind of balloon out of control. In, in here, it's, it's, well, basically four persons. The, the real team, the team that Ethan has once he's being framed. It's just four guys. And in Mission Impossible 2, it's just two guys. And from there on on, it, they start to just balloon out of control. Like Mission Impossible 3, the team consists, once again, it's, it's four guys at first, then there is a fifth guy. Two guys get dropped by Rogue Nation. And, but then they include Jeremy Renner, uh, no, Ghost, Ghost Protocol. They include Jeremy Renner, who then is also in, in Rogue Nation for a short while, if I remember correctly, gets dropped. Mm. So it, uh, the teams are kind of like, they, 
they start to inflate with other people, more agents coming into Ethan's team to a point where actually they become kind of a almost a hindrance. Like some yeah. of those guys just has to be kicked out because nobody can figure out what the hell we are going to do with these guys in the next movie. Yeah, that's kind of it. And we can get to all of these as we as we go on a little bit further. But yeah, like the the what's his name in even again? The Mission Impossible, the, the Mission Impossible Two, the sidekick of Wing Rames, Luther Stickles. I can't remember. I just call him Cappy. Absolutely useless. Absolutely useless. Yep. Doesn't bring anything to the film. And I was kind of disappointed to hear that Ricky Gervais would have been. I mean, this would have been probably kind of exciting, perhaps. Would have been signing on to become Benji, but that was the last opportunity. He didn't become Benji. It's this other actor whose name now uh, escapes my mind, but uh, I think he also doesn't bring too much. At least in the part three, he doesn't bring anything to the film. But he's basically the replacement of that helicopter guy in Mission Impossible 2. Simon Pegg. Yeah, Simon Pegg from Mission Impossible 3 onwards. He, he's a kind of strange fit into this franchise. Altogether, he's a kind of strange fit into Hollywood films. I always... I, I like I'm, I'm someone who likes Simon Pegg. I like him in, in movies. But at the same time, I've always had this inkling feeling that perhaps Simon Pegg never would have landed all the Mission Impossibles and, and all, all of those other stuffs without the... the Shaun of the Dead and the Cornetto mm. Trilogy. Like to me, a lot of Simon Peck castings kind of taste and feel like that he has been casted in this project or that project because, you know, he, it's, it's the guy from, from Shaun of the Dead. Everybody loves Shaun of the Dead. Well, fair enough, he's also a comedian. Yeah, he is kind of a comedian, but at the same time, I just somehow... Somehow can't lose the taste in my mouth that that's why he's well now in Mission Impossible Three. Yeah, well maybe a few bad words about the soundtrack as as well in the film. I think it's an odd experimental hodgepodge of a gazillion things at the same time. It's like a artist's playground uh, when you have one month to do something with your sounds. There was a. Uh... Alan Silvestri, I believe, he was supposed to do the soundtrack, but then he was fired by by Cruz and the team. In the end, I think this soundtrack doesn't deliver anything. It sounds exactly like what it is, made in a couple of weeks of studio time by a guy who is extremely experimental with his material, and it ends up, at least in my ears, it sounds like noise. But yeah, doesn't doesn't give you anything. Lost opportunity there. Yeah, that could be. I kind of remember, I usually don't remember film soundtracks, and I most definitely don't remember it for the first Mission Impossible movie. Sometimes that could be a good thing. I think there's like two types of soundtracks. If you want the guy who makes memorable soundtracks, like where the music really takes a big role in the film, it's not just there to, you know, hit some bunch of drums at the right moment to amp up excitement. Yeah, you got your John Barrys, you got your Hans Zimmers, and then on the other end you have these people who just hit the drums and do weird, unsynchronized music bits that happen here and there. So, in other words, completely unlistenable on an album. That's what I would say that is the Danny Elfman soundtrack of this thing. And I have I have never liked Danny Elfman stuff anyway, so 
but uh, each to their own. Yeah, I like Danny Elfman themes. And I remember that when Mission Impossible one uh, came out, the soundtrack also got a, got a CD release. I never followed, followed up how much it show, sold, but like 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 uh, movie soundtracks are not any kind of a major music publishing thing in in, in Finland. They they are always kind of niche. Yeah, some movies get their soundtracks out. And most of them don't. Finland is always kind of a dark hole of film soundtracks in that sense. But Mission Impossible 1 did come out during the time period when the CD producers were honestly trying to, to push out film soundtracks to the open market, make, the, make them a thing that would happen. And there was even some push behind Mission Impossible 1 soundtrack when it was being sold. And at least to my knowledge, the only thing from that soundtrack that any uh, anybody remembers is the theme song and nothing else yeah yeah precisely and and the theme song for for this film is originating very much from the tv show so there goes that thing too and uh it's a title track a theme tune that i think sounded really dated even back in 1996 it sounds really dated they could have done a little bit more modifications to it in my opinion but Okay, okay. Nah, it's a classic. You shouldn't touch about classics. It's like that, touching something like Robocop's theme. Just don't mess with that one. Just ask Robocop remake. <laughs> Alright, quickies. The performance pedestal. Would you raise and praise or barbecue one actor? Well, I guess there's only one person to put on the pedestal and that's Tom Cruise. Okay. Yeah, let's keep him in the boat. Let's not push him down to the waters. Pretty good stuff. Also, th- this is an extremely... Uh, this splits opinions quite a bit. Even Tom Cruise's performance, or some say that he's too egotistical somehow and uh, doesn't fit the role, and that Ethan Hunt shouldn't be the guy who is in the lead role in a Mission Impossible film, and it should be something like Jim Phelps. Again, I haven't seen the TV show, but I understand that Jim Phelps is kind of the brains and the good guy in the TV show. <sighs> Whatever. Uh, I like Tom Cruise here. What worked? For me, it's atmosphere. For me, it's, it's Brian De Palma directing a very Brian De Palma-ish thriller film. Just a little, with a higher budget, more close over it, but at the end of the day, you, if you know Palma is directing, you can clearly see that, oh, this is a Brian De Palma feature. If you don't know about the director, but you have seen Palma's other works, the odds are that you are actually going to recognize Palma's handprint all over the film. And I, as a, as a someone who, well, I can't say I love everything from Palma. He has made his own number of darts throughout the years. But he has made some real bang-out classics like Blowout and Scarface and The Untouchables, Dress to Kill, just to name a few. So, as someone who enjoys Palma's style, even in some of his more like divisive films like Snake Eyes, I, I do say that Palma works for me really well in the first Miss Impossible. Yeah, once again, not really 
my cup of tea as uh, in the type of films that he gravitates towards, like The Untouchable, Scarface, things like that. But I very much, of course, appreciate, uh, for example, his Carrie film from 1976. Dude has style, absolutely. What worked in the film? Well, it has the Mission Impossible elements, it has the silly masks, it has the different gadgets, the impossible situations, so to speak. And that's what we come to watch for, at least when I come to a Mission Impossible film. So I want to see this kind of CIA Langley scenes. And just, that's that's really the, the big trademark scene here. The whole CIA Langley escape and uh, getting the whole disc. So, absolutely, there's a lot of elements here. I wouldn't say that this is yet kind of like a the full... Well, it's sort of a blueprint, I guess... I wouldn't go that far. I to to me this one is extremely one off thing. Something that kind of da- in no way carries into the the sequels. Mm, yeah, the three movies it's it's such of a hodgepodge of things. I don't know what to say, but it, it has those spy things and that that works at times and sometimes it it doesn't. What didn't work like all the aforementioned soundtrack didn't work, the building up of some scenes didn't work in my, to my stylistic sense anyway. The whole palette, ballet of the film is not my cup of Earl Grey, but this is kind of the problem with film podcasting or talking about films sometimes. It's so much to your taste buds if you like this or that. And to me, this is just a film in many stylistic senses that it's just not speaking to me. But I can see why people like it. Describe the film film in one word. From my end, the word is intense. Uh, dullified. Will this film survive the test of time? Uh, unfortunately, kind of no. It does have its... its place in in the franchise it most definitely has its place on the palma's filmography this was kind of like the one where box office budget wise palma perhaps peaked he was still flying high after following mission impossible there was snake guys there were a few other like big budget thriller films that he made but for example, with, for example, Snake Eyes, the critics were extremely harsh and divisive on that film. So I would say that like, this is perhaps perhaps the prime time in Palma's career when it comes to like how big projects and how much money you are being given. So, but at the same time, at the same time, even though this is really important film for Brian De Palma, I don't know if this is really important film for Mission Impossible franchise. And I kind of, I have the feeling that the franchise itself kind of wants you to forget its roots. Like for, uh, Mission Impossible one and two, there are films that are no in no way are they hard to find. The DVDs are everywhere, there are Blu-rays everywhere, but. If you, for example, go looking for streaming services to, to check out Mission Impossible 1, you, you find it, but it's always on rent or buy. It, it's never put on, you know, what you get with your basic subscription to streaming service. You do get, you do get Mission Impossible 3, you most definitely get, like, the, the last three movies, Coast Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout. 
They are everywhere. You go to next Netflix, they are there. You go to Viaplay, they are there. You go to Amazon Prime, they are there. But with Mission Impossible 1, well, they are there, but, you know, five bucks, please. So, I kind of get the feeling that the push is, from the franchise end, the push for Mission Impossible, what movies should be, or wanted to be preserved from the franchise, it's on the later end. And I kind of understand it, because Mission Impossible is so different from parts 4, 5, and 6. So, you know, yeah, 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 fair's fair. But I do kind of feel that that's going to hurt this film's legacy and its longevity, and I do feel that it's kind of a shame. Well, uh, I don't know, like, will this film survive the test of time? Yes, it will survive the test of time by the virtue of being part of this franchise and people buying it, and people want to see it because they want to see the newer, more fancier, more expensive, with newer effects, Mission Impossible films there, and I think this film for the watchers of 4, 5, and 6, for sure, for the people who have seen number 3 before the first one, would also agree that this is a bit of a weird film when you come from number 3 to 1. I don't know which one, which film I saw as the first one. Might have been the first one, actually. But yeah, I, I can totally see that there's a huge stylistic difference there. Complete the sentence, please. You really know you're watching Mission Impossible when... When the 60s all of a sudden turned into 80s and all of a sudden turned into something kinda hot. Hmm. Keep in mind that the 80s Mission Impossible TV series was not the original. It was no. a sequel reboot TV show. The original is the 60s one. Absolutely. And just like the 80s cast may look at Brian De Palma's film and think it's kinda ass, well... Nobody has been asking about the 60s show what they thought about the 80s show. <laughs> Except at least the fact that, well, the 60s version ran for, what, four to six seasons? And the 80s only managed a tiny two seasons. Yeah, you really know you're watching Mission Impossible when it's nothing I would scream or jump on couches about. Did you like the film? Tremendously. It was okay was it was passable time would you ever rewatch the film i think i'm done for a moment i well for the moment but i do know i will rewatch it at some time uh, miss impossible the first one is not the film that i've seen the most of times from this franchise but the older i get and the more i spend time with with the franchise itself the more and more i start to have like entries that kind of speak to me more than the others. Some some, some some speak hell of a less, and I'm like, never want to see that one again. And kind of my attitudes with, with these individual installments, they change, they, they move, and at least for now, Mission Impossible 1 is one of my favorite entries on this franchise. So I guess that would mean you would recommend the film, no doubt. I do as heavily recommend it. It's not necessarily for everybody, because like we have pointed out, it's a genre film. It's also a movie that is like really weird. Like you said, if if you 
if you f- the first mission possible you are con- you check out is, is something like three or four or five or six and then you see the first one it's going to we- feel weird as all fuck so it's not it's not for everybody but I've, those who enjoy palma those who enjoy old dark boring dull <laughs> spy movies i i do think that mission impossible does fit that urge it's also the mission impossible film where ethan is most humane he has the most on uh, hanging on his shoulder not like global stakes wise but personally wise and it's also the one where ethan is is most uh, he he's at the top of peak of his intelligence here there's a hell of a lot of smart stuff that ethan does throughout the movie he he breaks the light bulb to have like that is somebody approaching my my room a, a small alarm thing he also dims the second light bulb so that the, the hallway gets dark so nobody can see the shards on on the ground there's a the whole bible cipher thing that he cracks that's smart shit. Like, spy movies always operate on the way that a character moves from A to B to C until he reaches the, the final solution and cracks the plot. But in here, Ethan actually has to do some stuff. He has to figure something out. He has to play all these different parties against each other. Max against Gingrich. Max against Phelps. He has to double cross and make alliances. And in the later episode, uh, installments, it's more or less like Ethan knows there's a McCuffin somewhere. He goes there. Oh my god, the bad guy show up. <laughs> Fight scene. Oh my god, we lost the McCuffin uh, chase scene. <laughs> Somebody calls Ethan. Hey, Ethan, there's a second lead for the McCuffin. Ethan goes there. Oh my god, it's more bad guys. <laughs> Fight scene. And they are beautiful like that. When it comes to use of intelligence and personal stakes. Hint, hint, notch, notch, calculating on the fly a rope jump from one skyscraper to the next and wifey almost killed Mission Impossible 3 something something. Well, he does do calculations there, (laughs) but he doesn't really figure out, well, not much anything. Goes to location to another and that's how he figures out who the traitor is because he the traitor just shows up while in here he's casually sitting with Phelps and he pieces in his mind he's talking about one thing and at the same time he's just like piecing together how Phelps eliminated the whole theme there's like all of this pressure and then the personal trauma is something that is never touched upon again random point there's Andreas Wisniewski being one of Max's henchmen also appears in you know where the the living daylights the henchman there <laughs> also random point we have emilio estevez being the the tech guy of the team the original team that gets wiped out wiped out and we have emilio estevez that does not appear at the end credits <laughs> what the fuck film what the fuck really yeah 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 emilio estevez who is who was not unknown actor back at the do- time? This is the same Emilio Estevez that was in Mighty Ducks movies. Yeah. Uncredited in oh. Mission Impossible One. Holy cow! Would I recommend the film? Um, a lot of action cliches. Something something tries to be very smart, 
adult appealing, uh, slow moving, uh, intelligent thriller, then maybe doesn't really manage to be that and turns out to be more dull than it really has to be. Really? Still as, as intelligent as this franchise can get? Uh, well, depends, uh, I you, guess. You, on... you, think, you, you think you have seen stupid. Oh, boy. It depends on which kind of intelligence we're talking about here. There's we, different, we different talking, kinds talking... of intelligence. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm talking about smart and logical kind of intelligence. <laughs> Not, I'm, I'm cooking up random bullshit intelligence. Oh, gotta love that next episode. Uh, put the films... Uh, okay, I didn't answer the question. I don't know if I should even answer the question. <laughs> well... Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. No recommendation. Yes, recommendation. No, yes. Neutral. Uh, dear listener, would you recommend Mission Impossible by Brian De Palma? Come and comment on our social media pages and tell your best friend about this podcast so that they will have uh, the trauma of their life. Any thoughts before the outro? Just hesitantly waiting for the next episode. Oh boy, do we got a treat for you in the next episode. Gotta get Chan Wu on the loose in Mission Impossible 2. Meanwhile, put this episode in the books. Thank you for joining us, dear listeners. See you in the next one. Until then. Dun 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 dun